Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast. This is episode 244. I'm your host, Ryan Tansom. Today's show is a super interesting discussion with the SaaS master, Dan Martell. If you're here because you recognize the name, you're going to learn the metrics Dan uses to evaluate the growth of businesses, what he learned from his failures, and other time-saving tips to dominate your niche, buy back your time, and scale a business. If you don't know who Dan is, you're in for a real treat. Dan Martell might be the best known name in the SaaS industry. Not only does he run the biggest YouTube channel for SaaS entrepreneurs in the world, but he has also successfully exited three companies and advises industry giants. After making his first million at the age of 27, he was named the top entrepreneur in New Brunswick and the top angel investor in Canada-wide in 2012. He knows his stuff and is super passionate about sharing his hard-won insights with every entrepreneur, no matter their background. I love this episode because of how authentic and transparent Dan is, because he shares how hard it was growing up, then the struggles in business, and how that led to his success. So not only has he done it, and he is one of the top investors with companies like Hootsuite, Intercom, and Udemy, but he started from nothing. He started out as a troubled kid, got in trouble with the law, and used the time that he served to learn how to code and completely change the trajectory of his life. One of the first businesses Dan started and sold was a professional services company that led him into this world of software and why he prefers software over services huge gold nuggets in this part of the conversation. Then Dan and I take a slight left turn in the conversation because we talk about just the challenges of scaling and growing companies, how to really understand the financials and the things he wishes he would have known all the way back from the first company. And it was just a blast of a conversation because Dan has so much wisdom to pull from and he doesn't sugarcoat what it takes to learn execute and get what you want and have the choices and freedom that we are all in search for. I really hope you enjoy this interview with Dan. He's the master. So without further ado, here's my interview with Dan Martell. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Good morning, Dan. How are you doing? I'm doing amazing, Ryan. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Um, I was just saying, uh, just to kind of lay it out there for the audience, um, as I have followed you, you got introduced to a bunch of common mutual connections, and you have one hell of a background story that led you into entrepreneurship that I'd love to give your, uh, have you give the listeners an overview of. And then, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you're doing in the SaaS business that you came out of your service-based business and why your productizing thing is in scaling. So there's a couple of different avenues we can go with this, but why don't you lay the groundwork for us so that way we can dive in right into it? Yeah. Um, so I grew up uh, in a family of four kids, second oldest. I've got a sister and two younger brothers. And 
we didn't, we didn't grow up poor. We just, I, I grew up in a challenging environment. You know, my mom was an alcoholic. Uh, I didn't know this till later uh, into my teens, but um, you know, growing up in that kind of emotional, challenging, chaotic world. My dad was in sales, so he was he was gone quite a bit. An amazing dude. Like, I mean, this is I share these stories. They're both alive today. They're incredibly important in my life. But you know, the reality of it is, is that that period of my life challenges and and this shaped me into who I am today. But you know, ended up um, getting taken out of my home at 11 years old diagnosed with ADHD, uh, what they would probably call oppositional defiance disorder, ODD today, which whatever, I had a temper. Um, <laughs> and uh, things just kind of spiraled out of control. When I was 13, parents got divorced, ended up getting introduced to drugs, spending time with guys twice my age, learning stuff about life that I probably shouldn't have been learning. And, um, you know, ended up in trouble with the law. Eventually, I found myself in, uh, in a stolen car, high and drunk, you know, handgun in a bag sit next to me because I made a commitment to myself if uh, the police stopped me that I was going to pull the gun and let them do their job and uh, ended up, you know, getting to a high speed chase, trying to get away, smashed into a house. And when I went for the gun, um, it got stuck and I kept pulling on it and pulling on. It. Eventually, the police came up to the yard and opened the door and grabbed me and literally my feet didn't touch the ground, just dragged me across the front yard. And I woke up sober the next day in a jail cell, wondering what my life was going to look like. I was 16 at the time and ended up uh, getting sentenced to prison for the severity of my crime. So adult prison, uh, they had like a juvenile corner to this place. After six months, worked really hard to get out of there, proved myself. The, the judge and my caseworker allowed me to go to a rehab center called Portage, where I spent 11 months working on myself, like literally feeling management, sharing my story, rebuilding my confidence, building my self-worth, you know, rebuilding the trust I'd lost with, with my family. And uh, it was at the end of that program, 11 crazy hard months of internal work that I was helping Rick, the maintenance guy, clean out one of the cabins on, on site. It was an old church camp. And in one of the rooms in the cabin was this old 486 computer and a yellow book on Java programming. And, um, I just opened it up expecting it to be like Chinese and it reads like English, right? If you ever looked at JavaScript, it's like, if this, then that. And I thought, wow, that's cool. I never touched computer, but I ended up uh, booting up the computer and following chapter one of this book. And I got the computer to say, hello world. So I thought I was a genius, man. That's the, the unfortunate part is not true, but it didn't matter. I literally got this computer to do what the book said. And I just felt like maybe, maybe I had a calling for computer programming. And what was funny is that that became my new addiction, you know, and um, mm -hmm. my dad always said, if I could just find something I was passionate about, that wasn't illegal that I do well in life. And, um, and then honestly getting out of, you know, portage, going back to high school to, to graduate with honors and, and getting into computers there. So the high school I went to had a computer program. So I like went all yeah. in, and, um, you know, I've been fortunate enough since then to have built uh, an incredible, I call it an empire. I literally, I've invested in 40 plus companies as an angel investor for them are billion dollar companies. I've built five tech companies myself. I've exited the last three. I've raised venture capital for the last two. I travel the world speaking on scaling and building software companies. And that's kind of, I run the largest YouTube channel in the world for software entrepreneurs. And that's my world, man. It all came from a moment as a 17 year old trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And, and at the moment, my vision was just not go back to jail. I mean, it's a crazy ride.
Well, and, and I appreciate you giving the, the context because we're all link out to your YouTube channel. And then, and like you even said, because I can relate to you because I've been telling my own story for the last seven years. And I want to get to some stuff that you kind of almost build on some of the other stuff that's out there, Dan. So, you know, you got this great interview with John Warlow from, you know, three years ago. My dad was on the show. He's been on the show. And like, so if they want to go listen to the technical way about how you grew and sold that business, it, I want to kind of just touch on these and then build it forward. So you had talked about, you, you had switched from services to software. So first of all, and then I'll kind of plant a couple of seeds. You can go whatever direction you want. Is One is after learning a bunch of software and coding, why'd you get into services uh, first? And then there's something that it was really interesting to me, Dan, is at the end of the episode, you're talking about life after. And this podcast used to be called Life After Business because I actually, when we sold, I called it Phantom Anxiety. And I went home, I cried. We sold the, you know, sold the business, all this stuff. It was just crazy emotionally experienced. So let's, I want to expand on why services. And then what was your experience reinventing yourself? Because you did that in your in your childhood. And this is a way different version of kind of evolution. So why don't you kind of take yeah. either one of those? Yeah, no, I appreciate the the question, Ryan. I've had to evolve myself a few times, you know, and um, I think that's one thing I pride myself on is I've gotten into different industries and succeeded, right? From services company with Spirit, and this is after two failed companies. The first two companies I started, Maritime Vacation and MB Host, did not succeed, right? I'm just lucky that I started when I was 17, and then again at 21. So by the time I was 24 and I started with Spirit, I had I had some you know, entrepreneurial failures, which I feel like we all have just some people start when they're nine and other people start when they're 38. So it's just, it just is what it is. But what happened with, with Spheric is on the services side is I was, I was literally just trying to learn, get, you know, almost like get paid to, to, to learn business. And, uh, I read my first business book when I was 23, it was called love is a killer app by Tim Sanders. You know, I'd read a bunch of business, uh, technical books, software books. I became a Microsoft certified solutions developer, like nerdy software architecture database stuff, but never occurred to me to read a business book until I was 23. I'm walking around in Ottawa, Canada, working for, as a consultant for our, our version of the FAA, you know, uh, NAV Canada. And, um, this, you know, something spoke to me about this book and it wasn't even a book. It was a CD. So I, I bought it, listened to it and it just, it literally transformed my life around, you know, consuming knowledge from my customers and being a good person and your network is your net worth. And, and so, so sphere came from just saying, okay, well, I want to be in business. I'm getting calls from recruiters for this technology that I'm specialized in called plum tree portals. And if I had a dozen people like me, I could literally retire. Like if those people worked for me and I had the relationships with the clients and, you know, I knew the economics of my world, I literally could, you know, that would be success. And, um, that was the beginning of Spheric. And, and what was funny is while I was building that agency, even though I almost, you know, screwed up two years into it, grew way too fast, didn't have the cash flow to make payroll, went into a depression, reached out, you know, cold to, to a mentor that introduced me to three other people that, that became literally my men, like to this day, folks, I turned to for, for big life advice, you know, that, that's where I started to build my own software. So I've always been good at building software, building software. So at first, my first two companies for myself failed, thought maybe I should get paid to help other people that built the capital. So, I mean, that company made me financially wealthy at 28 years old when I exited. I mean, but even before that we were generating like, you know, six, 700,000 in profit. I was 20, 
six, 27 years old. Right. Mm -hmm. And I just, mm -hmm. and I drove around in a, you know, an 87 Jetta for a long time. <laughs> and then eventually I think I got a 2001 Murano, right? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. nobody knew. And, and I didn't care. It was literally, I looked at, at re, like the revenue and the capital is just almost opportunity to, to reinvest and to grow myself. And, you know, so, um, that was that part of it. And, um, afterwards just, you know, choosing to get into this world that, and I had tried to build a few software companies within Spheric and anybody that has an agency has probably tried to do that. Any business owner probably at some point, like build sure. something for themselves and say, you know, I remember meeting my buddy. He had, uh, he had, I'm not going to be too specific, <laughs> but he had a manufacturing company and he built, he literally ran this like $13 million a year business off of Microsoft access database on a uh -huh. network server. Yeah. And he was yeah. like, called me up one day. He's like, I think I could sell this to other people like me. And I'm like, dude, I can't believe your business is still running. Like you should be on something a little bit more oh, horsepower. It doesn't surprise me anymore, share. man, Dan. I like they would, <laughs> did you guys do that? Like, he no, I mean, like I had, I had this client where they had, they're running a $65 million company off of uh, an AS 400 still. <laughs> like terminal green screen. Like, yeah. And, but it's like, they would call each other to ask them to close down the file so they could go update a customer record. I mean, it's just, but I, so I've always been software curious, but because I had those two failed starts, I, I lost a lot of confidence. So it wasn't until after, and I tried a few companies in Spheric, but I was distracted and uh, I had to shut those down because the thing with agencies is if you're doing work that's making you money and you start this side hustle, especially with like some new hire, it's like their test project. And then it starts to get traction, but then you got a customer who's willing to pay you real money today you just never give it the attention it needs. I want to pull yeah. that thread. So I, and make sure that we come back. Uh, I got to kind of do this for my own is about the kind of the emotional relationship you have with a business mm -hmm. too. I want to come back to that. But the economics, Dan, this is where it's so interesting. You know, you talk in a couple of your other uh, interviews about you almost went bankrupt. Growth is fast. I've done a bunch of interviews where you talk about like growth is expensive. But then what's super interesting is there's this concept that we talk about uh, with entrepreneurs is quit solving for annual income. If you're optimizing for your K-1 distributions, perks, your salary, you're you're necess you're not necessarily optimizing the long-term value creation of your company. And then when you think about a SaaS business, where like if it, if you're going to put the throttle down on capital, the economics from the cash and like what you can reinvest is way different than a service-based business. So kind of just walk through your overall thoughts on that because it's so different yeah so i mean in the software world essentially what you're creating is an annuity right no different than you would with an insurance product if you're an insurance agent or like an investment vehicle like uh you're essentially deferring the free cash flow today for the future value so um the reality of it is if you can like in venture back software world you'll spend up to 16 months of value of a customer. So if they pay you 500 bucks a month, you'll spend that time 16 to acquire a customer to pay you back after a year and a half of, you know, finally producing some level of profit. And the reason why is the 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 free cash flow component of it gets really interesting if you have a low churn, meaning the amount mm -hmm. of customers that cancel every month. If you have a great expansion revenue, meaning that, you know, the base of customers that start in January, if they end up spending more at the end of the year through proper pricing, value metrics, packaging, and, and plan structure. And then also just the overall value of the business. I had a coaching client that sold his company for a hundred million. And, you know, after the deal was done, you know, he shared with, I have a private internal group of folks that are kind of like in that 10 to 15 million range. 
he shared that I left 20 million on the table by not building out the sales team and taking too much cash out of the business. Like I should have reinvested that back in. And and the way he thinks about it, and and I agree, it's every dollar you take out today is $7 into the future. Yeah. Right. And the reality though is, is most entrepreneurs just don't know how to reinvest capital efficiency. That's just, if you know how to do that, you're in the very few elite, you know, like most people don't, they can't even run a business, let alone know how to properly reinvest, right? Most agencies and and, and one of my CFO is Greg Crabtree. He wrote a book called Real uh, Simple Numbers. And he argues that, you know, if you're kind of good, you'll do a third as a distribution, a third for taxes and a third to invest in growth, right? Mm-hmm. And that's like a good kind of way to think about it if you're not in the software space. But if you do know how to, you know, and one of the metrics that I would recommend people look at is return on equity. You know, like what's the return on equity, essentially cash left in the business. You know, most companies that aren't really that great are doing 50% ROE, right? And I mean, that means you're getting 50%, 50 cents on the dollar extra every year if you decide to kind of, you know, keep the cash in the business to help support the economics. So um, most of my companies are a hell of a lot higher than that, which is awesome because... <laughs> That's the beauty of, of the software world is it's they're incredibly cash efficient. They're just expensive if you don't know how to reduce your your cost to acquire a customer. Does that answer the question? Yeah, it, it, sort of, it, 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 it does. And it provides us some context, Dan, because like it, and I'm just totally riffing here is, is I like because I got so many years of trying to you know, compile like what the heck is going on like with my entrepreneur peers? What are the components that equal success? You got the psychological component. You just were, you know, we were talking about a lot about the the financial mechanics of this. And like understanding what creates value, how to efficiently deploy capital. And then you got the operational met, you know, mechanics of how to, you know, use the, all these components correctly. You've been through a lot, you know, these exits, you've been investing in these companies. And so you're, you're gathering how the, the mental state of a business owner and their understanding as well as the financial, you know, you know, economics of it. And then the business operational economics. I mean, it's just such a complicated thing. And you've gone through this. If you were to go back to your self before you sold the first business when you're 28, like where along the journey did you learn components of this? Where now you can sit down, you can invest in a company, you can assess this whole situation without really having to break it all down. And does that question make sense? I mean, yeah, no, it makes sense. Cause I like, I remember one day in my early twenties, I was sitting in the park with my buddy Martin and, and I was, I was literally like, entrepreneurship is my sport. I literally, I do not watch team sports. I couldn't tell you anything about the news. I can't like, yeah, I'm just, I'm the only Canadian that never played hockey. So, um, my sport is business. And one day I'm sitting in this park in Toronto with my buddy, Martin, he was in business as well. And I just, there was this, 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 this visualization, this vision of like business is essentially like a switchboard and knobs, right. Kind of like a mix, mix board in a studio. And great business people know exactly what knobs to turn to get an outcome. And their hit rate is a hundred out of a hundred, meaning that every move is effective. And I thought at that point in my early twenties, I'm probably at like 10, you know, 10 out of a hundred, like, yeah, but like, so it just, it made me realize there's just this whole, and like each knob is different components of your business from the go to market, to the positioning, to the finance, to the capital structure, to the team, to the equity, to the, like, literally there's all these knobs, right? Cause I'd been at that point, I'd read, you know, a dozen, a couple dozen business book. I started to see patterns mm-hmm. and, um, 
what I would say is I learned each one of the things that I know today just in time. So I, I call it just in case versus just in time. A lot of people consume information to learn about the potential future. I like to learn as I'm dealing with struggles and challenges mm -hmm. today. So if I had to go back though, this is what I would do different. I would literally spend more time building a network of people that filled the gaps in lack of knowledge than try to learn it myself. Today, I'm able to move faster because I buy solutions. Mm -hmm. It's a who, not how. I think I was a neighbor enamored for a long time about the mechanics of how things are done. And I think it's important for you to build a strategy that doesn't allow you to get taken advantage of. So for example, I don't know anything about the, the legal component. or I say I don't, but I do just through osmosis doing so many deals. But I have a legal team and then I have a legal advisor. And as long as the legal team's proficient and then the legal advisor reviews their work, then I feel comfortable because I have two sets of eyes that are independent. And I feel like that when I say a methodology or a strategy yeah. to avoid, that's what I'm talking about, right? Just like my controller, my CFO, and then the person that does the year end, they're, they're essentially different because I want checks and balances done. And I think that that's where I would have done things different is I would have spent more time because I'm, I, I learn best just by talking to people and, and, you know, challenging ideas and, and, and double clicking on things and being like, but well, how does this work? Uh, whereas if I'm reading a book, it's kind of a one way narrative, right? You mm -hmm. know, it's consumption mm -hmm. only. So I would have spent more time building that network because I didn't even understand the value of a true, true network of advisory boards, et cetera, until into my early thirties when I, when I built my first venture back company and, you know, built a board and built advisors and just saw the, the impact of getting advice at the right time from the right person, literally transform a business outcome. Right. From I, I, I just, I, before this call, I was on a call with uh, one of my mentors in the, the training coaching business and he's doing 60 million a year. So arguably one of the top 0.1%, you mm -hmm. know, coaches in the world. And a question I had about, their sales process literally just saved me probably a year trial and error. That's the kind of, you know, and it was a three minute question. It was like, here's what we're doing today. How do you guys do it? Oh, we do it this way. We use this tool and we do that. I'm like, oh my gosh, of course, that's how you would do it. I don't know mm -hmm. why it never occurred to me. But again, the guy's been doing it for 25 years. So having access to that caliber of person, that's what I would have changed going forward to teach me about the business side. But I'm most fascinated by entrepreneurs that actually don't know a lot about mechanics and they're just really good at vision and people, you know, because I think that's where the real ROI is going to come from. Describe that. What do you mean by that? I think that the best leaders out there, the best visionaries are ones that are able to hold that vision as a truth in their mind at a hundred percent for as long as possible and then breathe that future over the people that report to them and, and create a world where everybody on their team's goals fits inside their vision for their business. Like my, my rule for my life is my dreams have to be big enough for all my team's dreams to fit inside of. And if I don't do that, then why would they stay with me? Right. And if I don't communicate that, which everybody has another level, including myself of how do I share the future, even though I see it in high, high fidelity, clarity, like, again, it's the, the vision in my mind. So things like the vivid vision practice that Cameron Harrell talks about connecting the vision on a daily basis repeatedly to every 
leader that you person you report to and say, Hey, the reason we're doing this work is to connect this thing. Cause next year we're doing that. And then three years from now we're doing this, which is going to unlock this outcome, right? That ability to learn how to communicate that the economy of words, the storytelling, the, the understanding their desires and how do you take what they shared as a, a need, a want for their five-year vision and plug that into the business to unlock that opportunity for themselves. I think that is what business is really about. The mechanics, it does, I could literally buy a restaurant tomorrow and have one of the most successful restaurants in the world. Not because I'm an egotistical maniac that thinks anything I do is touch gold. is because the process that I'm going to use to make success in the restaurants, the same one I use to build success in any business. And it's a proven process. Like get around people that have done it before, reverse engineer what they're doing, build a good advisory board, you know, hire great, get out of their way, empower them, communicate the vision for the restaurant. Like, the, the, you know, ask yourselves what makes us different and unique, you know, make sure there's a market for it, you know, be competitive in the, in the, the financial structure and the, the gross margin, like just to me, it's, it's success leaves clues. And if we can surround ourselves with people that can teach us how to communicate that vision, how to become empathetic leaders, I think that those are the two things that took me a long time in business to really double down on. So I'm going to ask you a question. I love the context. I want to uh, dive further on how you're straddling multiple areas. And so like, and this has come from my, my, my experience where like, so, cause I've been the visionary and I, and I, I totally gravitate towards that role that you just talked about. Right. And when it's your vision and you're bringing in people and you're designing a company, what, and especially if it's more software, you become like this artist and this individual that, you know, if you haven't done this multiple times and exited you, you, it becomes your identity. So like, there's a couple of things. And then I, I want to hear your thoughts is like, so one is how do you keep that in a healthy relationship while you're doing that, getting people bought in and passionate, but also not sacrificing your soul to that vision. And then the second component, Dan, is you, hopefully the mechanics of that business that you're devoting your soul and all that to is growing value long-term and then making sure that you have an, like, enough of an understanding of the mechanics of the valuation in the business to, to know when and how to let it go into some other person, right? Like it's really yeah. complicated to straddle all those worlds. I mean, how do you do it? Well, a, uh, lessons learned. So every mistake you can make in business, I've made probably two or three times. That's just a hundred percent truth. And I can point to every one of them. You know, <laughs> you asked me earlier about, you know, the, um, kind of the, the, the kind of the post exit vibe of like, you know, and, and the identity of like, this is who I was after I sold spirit, I went into a depression, I was getting anxiety attacks. And this is coming from a person that was, you know, personal development and positive mindset and gratitude. I mean, literally, I five minute journal sitting next to me. I mean, this Love is it. not a plug, but everybody should buy one. Because <laughs> um, it's just my daily practice. And I've and I've been like that for a while. And so it just was so weird that here I was, with more money than I ever seen in my bank account, not having to work and getting anxiety attacks because, you know, my therapist, and once I found one, cause I didn't know what was going on, told me essentially I was having like, like almost like a father that lost a child. Like I was having that same, I just didn't know it because I went from working 80, hundred hours a week, having this big team dependent on me and my identity wrapped around this company to waking up and literally nobody cared if I got out of bed. So zero drives, zero purpose. Yeah, I went out and, and bought a big house in a hot tub and a wakeboarding boat at 28 and thought I was set. Um, <laughs> but it turns out that that wasn't, you know, humans need purpose and they need meaning. 
And, um, you know, you can literally, you, people think it's about the money, but if I gave you $10 million and told you to sit under the stairs in a closet, you're still you. <laughs> you're right. It's not about the money, right? Yeah. And it's not even about the things the money buy. And look, and I drive a supercar. Like I'm, I totally love cool shit. Like I, <laughs> I get the, the benefits of having money, but I also know that it's the, the people that you get to share it in the memories, right? We don't get this time back. Like I, th- this moment is mine. You and I sharing this time, that is the only thing I've got. It's unique to me and us and, and, um, and everything else is kind of borrowed. Our, our bodies are borrowed. Our stuff is like, once we're gone, it gets put back into the world and whoever gets whatever they get. So what I've discovered to help me with the identity side is I've disconnected my self-worth to the things that I've created, right? Like this is, you know, there's this great guy called Peter Crone um, that is a mentor of mine, right? And, you know, he did an incredible interview with a guy named Ed Milet. So if you guys want, find the podcast mm-hmm. interview with Ed Milet and Peter Crone and you'll understand it. But he talks about like, you know, like, who do you, who do you think you are? And you, you say, well, the, this is who I am. I'm a, you know, I'm an Ironman. I'm a software entrepreneur. I'm a father of two. I'm, you know, I'm passionate about my community, all the things. And he says, well, if I like, you know, cut the back of your neck open and open up, am I going to find a tag that says, this is what you are? <laughs> right. Like there's no tag that says you're, you know, you're uh, anything. Like if I grew up in Spain, I'd be Spanish, not English. Like even that component, you got to understand is that we're a byproduct of our environment. So the truth is, is the things we create does not make our identity. And if you take those things away and you, and you live by that, like the cool part for me, I'm at a point in my journey where it's, it's, I call it blissfully dissatisfied. Right. And I got that from Ed, you know, like I am incredibly grateful and content with, with what I have and with, and I don't approach my day with lack, but at the same time, I know there's more for me to create and, and there's more for me to discover. And that is what I will hinge my, my drive on, not the specific outcomes, right? I'm competing against me from yesterday and the possibility of who I could be, right? And I just believe that there's greatness in every human being, period, including myself. And my job is to figure out how to express that as best possible. So I look at money and building companies is almost like uh, an opportunity to, to continue to build the gym of training for perfect practice around the possibility of who I can be, uh, become. And then at the same time, I'm not an idiot. Like some of my, my, I shouldn't say I'm not an idiot. Some of my <laughs> friends who are, are, you know, they're, they're, they're literally financially well, like on paper, they're wealthy and in their lives, they're poor. Yeah. Totally right? agree. And yeah. they take pride with, you know, mowing their own lawn and, um, you know, uh, being the first one in at work and the last one to leave. And they do all these things under the guise of hard work. And then, their, their wives like you're never home and their kids are like, you don't have time for me. They feel like their friends are like, you're not even a good friend. You never call me. And I just think that that's so crazy on the flip side is that once you accumulate some level of wealth, you need to learn how to redistribute it into your life to allow you to do more. And that's like what I'm really good at. I'm good at looking at my calendar and deploying capital to buy back my time, not because I think I'm better than anybody else and I can't do the work, only because I know where my genius lies for me. And I want to spend as much time as I can in those zones of genius, not in the zone of work, Mm -hmm. right? 
And in the old saying that my dad used to say to me as a kid, which was, you know, find something you love to do and you'll never work at a day in the life. Dude, it's so true, but you can't appreciate it until you don't. Like until you don't have to work, you don't understand. Like there's people that come to me and they go like, I, I wish I could wake up excited to do the thing I'm about to do. I don't know what that's not like to feel like. I haven't woken up and not been excited about my day in probably 15 years. Like, I can't think of a day where I laid in bed and said, man, I really don't want to get up. Like, I just, I just literally, it was just this iteration evolved process to get to a point where I've designed my life to include incredible work. And, and dude, I'm the guy that wakes up at 4am. I'll work harder than anybody else in the room. But I'm also the person that, 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 that gets the most out of their life. Like I literally go snow biking, cat skiing, heli skiing on Sunday, wake surfing, mountain biking. I work out sometimes twice a day. Like I'm, I'm all in all aspects of life. And, and to me, that's, if you want to call it identity, that's my identity, not the businesses anymore. Cause I, I did make that mistake when I sold sphere, I was sphere and that, that identity hurt me. And then I've taken that learning and said, look, the businesses I build are, are not me and their creations. And if they work out great, and if they don't, I'm here to learn. I learned a lot when things don't work out. And I think it's interesting is you can take that concept of buying back your time, right? So your calendar is probably invested. You got investments, you got current businesses and coaching, all this other stuff that you're doing. So your business or your calendar is full of a bunch of stuff. But if a listener's in here, they own a business and they're stuck in it. And so here, I'll give you kind of some uh, uh, some foundation you can you can uh, build on it is this annual income versus the long-term value creation, right? If you don't understand normalized EBITDA and like you're investing the cash flow that third or maybe more back into the business, what's going to be the return? Like you have a job, you have a salary, you get paid for that salary. Even if it's 400 grand as a CEO, I can find another person if I go recruit and I've got the capital, right? Like you don't have to do that. You should be allocating resources on the top of the cash flow mountain. So when you, if you have someone that's sitting there and they're stuck because they're, you know, solving for annual income, having, you know, that shift in mindset, when you're looking at a business, like a machine like that, Dan, like how do you start, like any exercise that you have of like people identifying like, okay, how do I invest in the business to buy back my time in the business to get on top of that cash flow? So this is the nuance. Okay. I read the email. You know, Michael Gerber, yep. incredible. You know, I had the privilege of, of sitting down having dinner with him a few years ago. That book transformed my life. It taught me about systems and procedures and the franchise prototype concept. And then I read like Sam Carpenter's book, Work the System and the Checklist Manifesto and, you know, everything from like how to delegate to productivity and all. And the, the missing crux for me that I learned a decade ago that shifted everything. And it's the number one thing. I, if, if I sit down with an entrepreneur, I won't talk about anything else other than this concept, the buyback principle. I love it. It's the unlock. And the way it works is you have to look at revenue and capital from your business as opportunity to buy time out of your calendar. Most people make the mistake of using that money to hire somebody to grow capacity, right? I need another customer support person. I need another person, frontline worker. I need another consultant. I need another developer. Or you could say, in my calendar, where am I spending time? Let me build these buckets of, of focus and, and value, like stack them saying like, I could pay somebody $15 an hour to do this group of stuff or $40 an hour or whatever. And literally look at the biggest swath of things that, that, that doesn't cost a lot that somebody else can do. Now, as soon as I say that, 
people are going to go, yeah, but what, you know, accounts receivable. What if I give it to somebody else and they don't do it right? That's a leadership problem. Okay. But for you to think that a CEO of a half million dollar a year should be spending time on accounts receivable, that's just ridiculous. Like you can <laughs> hire some, and, and, and some people will spend, you know, I remember uh, recently a, a client was um, thinking of hiring a COO. Okay. Quarter million dollar a year hire, like a big hire. Right. And I go, what, why, what are you spending your time on that you need to hire a COO to, to free up? And he goes, I spend probably 60% of my week producing these very advanced proposal designs for sales. And I go, what would it cost you to hire somebody per hour to do that work? And he goes, probably like 35 bucks an hour. <laughs> I'll tell you, dude, that hire is cheaper than a COO, right? And guess what? He didn't need a COO because as soon as he got that 60% of his time back, he took 20% and did the COO function he should have been doing that he wasn't. And all of a sudden he's golfing more, right? Like that's the idea is if you get capacity as a byproduct of hiring back from your, your, your calendar, then that's a benefit. But the reason why is because if you don't, usually at about 1.3 million in revenue and about a dozen employees, plus or minus five, 10%, you will end up where you'll wake up, you'll work your butt off. And at the end of the day, you'll look and feel like you didn't do anything. And the reason why is because you spent all your time managing people, telling them what to do, check they got done and tell them what to do next versus hiring people to buy back your time so that your time is spent in your zone of genius where there's no, if you, if I look at a calendar and I say, okay, highlight everything that's green, that brings you energy and everything that takes energy from you is red. If it's 50-50 today, let's get it to 90-10. Let's get it to 100%. I promise you, Ryan, my calendar is 100% green. And if somehow some sneaky little beaky thing snuck on there because Allie, my assistant, who owns my calendar, (laughs) it's one conversation. It doesn't happen for the rest of my life. It's, hey, those kind of things are not for me to do. This person should deal with it. And going forward, please make sure it doesn't end up in my calendar. And that, that allows me to scale infinitely. Because I never feel like I'm being energy sucked. I never feel like I'm doing anything that isn't in my zone of genius. And if as that shifts, as I've kind of scaled, you know, going from, you know, being a self-employed to a business owner, to being an investor, to now building an empire of companies with CEOs that report to me, like, and, and at any point, the cool part, right? At any point I can decide, I don't want to do this anymore. And like you said, hire the person. This is the new Dan. You guys report to him. Yeah. I'm gone for three years with my family and we're traveling the world and the business will continue to grow because I've hired people to do the functions that, that seem critical, but that really aren't. And, you know, so it's a big mindset shift. It's just, people don't value their time. They don't, they, if I get like the other thing, Ryan, if I magically said tomorrow, you've got the whole day back tomorrow. You just like, whatever you had planned to do is not needed. You've had the whole day. Most entrepreneurs wouldn't even know what to do with their time. And that's the reality. Isn't that crazy? Dude, you just nailed it. And like, so because what I've noticed, Dan, is people don't know what creates value, what creates leverage. So like, if you think about like, almost like the domino, if you take like, uh, if you almost like AI, if you push an algorithm, you're just going to get more of what you put into it. Right. So we have 168 hours a week, right? Period. You do, I do. We just got to figure out where we want to, and hopefully you enjoy it. And hopefully whatever you're doing is creating economic value in the wake, right? So if you push through 168 hours of what you just described, 
you know, where are you putting your time? Well, is it is it going into a business that's going to be worth a one multiple or a 10x MRR, right? And so like you start to like, you look at these ways of the mechanics of like, okay, I'm going to put the throttle down on my time, which is the first constraint. Then it's the the value that's being created after that. And hopefully, you know, when and how to trade that asset, which is just a business to make sure that your people and the thing that you built is going to pass on to the person that's going to take care of it based on the things that you've aligned with. And there's this. Well, moment- if you just think of that, I mean, there's two things on that. If you know the time component, if you just think of enterprise value, right? Mm-hmm. Like the business being valuable. If you are the single person that knows how it runs, and you have a, a thousand little um, minions, you know, uh, <laughs> worker bees, right? Then there's no value there. So like just even not only is it better for your mental health, but better for the business to use the buyback principle strategy that I teach because it inherently will create a business that's valuable because it's not going to be dependent on you, right? The the in regards to choosing where you should spend that free time if you if you happen to buy it back, as you've kind of alluded to a few times, we want to figure out what the market values, right? So I I remember um, and there's value drivers and value detractors and. Mm-hmm. A while ago, one of my friends, I was asking him, I was like, what's your plan? You know, like you've got this thing. I think it was at $3 million in revenue. And, um, you know, he's in the real estate space. He goes, you know, my plan is to build it up to 10 and then sell it. And I said, that's amazing. I said, uh, you know, who, who do you know that's built a company like yours that's actually sold it? And he's like, I don't know anybody. You know, now that you think of it, I think of it, I don't know anybody. I said, well, do you know what kind of companies would buy it? And he's like, I don't know. Like some, I, I just assume there's companies out there that'll buy my company. I said, well, here's the reality. You're going to spend the next, he was saying seven years to go from three to 10 building this business. Okay. So you're going to wake up every day and you're going to try to create value. You're going to try to trade time for money and be more efficient. And it's possible that you go and do all of this effort to end up at the end of the day, successful at the 10 million building this thing to find out that when you go to sell it, it has no value (laughs) to the market or worse the way you set it up. It could be the contracts your employment agreements, your IP structure, whatever it is, is a value detractor. Meaning you think it's worth X, but it's actually worth less because you didn't know what the market rewarded. And had you known that seven years ago, you could have set up the steps in the business, those things, those contracts, the agreements, the pricing structure, the, the length of terms of contract, whatever to be valuable and all you have to do today is ask. You could literally go to an M&A bank, to a business broker, to a, a, your, your accountant, to a lawyer, to say, hey, in these kind of transactions, what are the value drivers that are used to uh, increase the valuation? And then you've got seven years of essentially a hit list of focus of strategy to go execute against. I mean, that is that is more tactical, but that's where if you figure out how to do the buyback principle properly, that free time should be invested there. And that's kind of what you've been saying. It's like, that is the role of the CEO. Well, and it's so crazy. It's like, in literally, so I'm on a seven-year journey since we sold the business, Dan. So, you know, five years into the podcast, used to be called Life After, started talking about exits and like visceral reactions from entrepreneurs in Vistage and EO and all my CEO peer groups. And like, and I'm like, no, guys and gals, like this is no, it's not about selling today. It's about doing what you just described. And it's just this insane inertia do you have to overcome to say, like, unless you understand how value is created, like 
hey, this is enterprise equity value, net proceeds, like deals. Like, unless you know this stuff, how in God's name can you play the right game? And I'm just like you were like, this is my sport. So like, I just go, can you imagine walking onto a football field thinking you're playing soccer? <laughs> like, That's a good analogy. Like, what are the rules of the game? Like, you have to know them to actually strategize. There's going to be an outcome. There's a lot of different ways the plays can unfold. And again, this is coming from a guy that's not a sports guy, right? Like, but the analogy is very legit. And you go, like, how, like, to intentionally grow value, you have to understand it. And it's amazing how few people that are founders who didn't come from an Ivy League finance degree understand this stuff. And I'm just like, it's like the zeros and the ones in the matrix. You're like, dude, if you don't understand this, you're only going to hope and you wake up and it's just like 90% of the people where they sell and they go, I just never knew that all of my time, money, and energy was wasted for the last 15 years. I mean, how do you, how do you get over that pushback that you hear from people? Maybe you don't get it in the SaaS space as much, but like, you know, oh, it's not about selling. This is about like, you know, it's all like the ridiculous chance people have been telling themselves for decades. How do you like, what, what is your experience? Yeah. I mean, I think because of the nature of my world, the idea of exiting is kind of almost part of the conversation day one. Um, but what's lacking is what, you know, in, in that software space is understanding the game, right? When you said, um, you know, imagine that you, you think you're playing soccer and you walk onto a football field, like, most people think in software, it's like, I just need to get customers, right? But the truth is, it's, there's, there's two metrics that matter. There's the churn. So how many customers do you keep over what period of time? That's going to set your lifetime value. And then the other one is, is expansion revenue, which is how much money does a customer make you when they start versus you know, a year later for that cohort, right? Mm -hmm. And if you, can, if you can focus on those two things as first principles for growing the business, right? not purely on selling. And, and it's, it's, look, it's, it's romantic to want to learn growth hacks and marketing tactics and have the thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people use your product. I get it. But if doing that is taking away from building an efficient model, which is around retention and expansion, then you're, you know, to me, I always look at it as like right time, right action, right? One of my mentors, Eric Reese used to say that he was the author of the lean startup. And, you know, it's kind of like, and my other friend, Todd Herman, he says, uh, you know, sequencing equals success. And if I've got a, a recipe, you know, or I've got ingredients to make, you know, a cake and, you know, and this is the thing with most entrepreneurs, they have good ideas, right? So I have a mm -hmm. list of good ideas and one entrepreneur executes it in one sequence, the other executes it in a reverse sequence, one wins, the other one loses. So it's not about the good ideas. It's not about the ingredients. It's literally about the recipe. It's understanding what do I do this year, this quarter? And what do I do next year or next quarter? And, and prioritizing it to be able to maximize the benefit, right? That to me is strategy. And that is what most entrepreneurs that are, you know, as Gerber calls them, technicians that have an mm -hmm. entrepreneurial seizure, that's what they're missing. They're missing this whole swath of knowledge um, and questioning, which I would argue Keith Cunningham has the best stuff on this. So Keith, you know, the road less stupid Keith would be like, if I had to take, like, I didn't really grow up with a grandfather. He passed away before I was, when I was very young, but like Keith would be on, you know, I'd merge a bunch of cool people and Keith would be <laughs> on that list. Um, cause it's just, it's just sage strategic thinking, right? Like 
And I think that's what a lot of entrepreneurs don't give themselves permission to do is just to stop doing, to start thinking about the sequence of activities and how those are going to impact and what would, and, and just play out what would be different if I changed the priorities and tried this approach, maybe, maybe that'll yield a better outcome. But it all goes back to understanding the value drivers of the business. Because if you don't know that, then you don't know what game you're playing. So you think you scored and you actually scored against yourself, right? <laughs> well, and it, it, totally. And I think about like the sequence of events too. So Todd Herman's been on the show and we're talking about the imposter syndrome and he gave me some insanely very critical pushback right in the spot, which I loved. And there's this mindset shift that you have to have first, it, it, I, I think. And, and I don't know how you operate in your sequence of events, Dan, but like if I know why things happen, then I can go deep into something and I, it gives me the, the ability to overcome all the BS or challenges with trying to figure that information out. Cause I understand like the purpose of that, like, but the mindset shift has, has to happen first, right? Like you have to understand, like you have to give yourself permission, like you said. So like, is there things that you've seen where people like can't even get to that mindset shift or like, what are the, some of the biggest barriers to people getting oh, the right man. sequence? I mean, I could talk about my clients, but I think my own journey is just, polluted with that, right? Like one of the questions I ask myself on a daily basis is, you know, for whatever goals I want to achieve, who do I need to become to achieve that goal? Like, who do I need to become? It's like this conversation I have with myself in the mirror. It's like, here's where I'm at. Here's where I want to go. The person I am today is not going to be able to achieve that because if I was, then I would have it already, right? Like outcomes are hundred percent a byproduct of you, your mindset, your decisions, your prioritization, your strategies, your confidence, your all this stuff. So skill set, there's, there's things that you don't know, relationships. And, you know, from a mindset point of view, there's different levels where you hit these barriers, right? So like starting off in business, I didn't even know that it made sense to have a team. So my first two companies failed because it was just me and contractors once in a while to do a design to help me with a little bit of code. But it was, there was never, there was never even a thought of like, building a team. Like it just didn't occur to me for almost a decade. And then even when I started my third company, I realized I needed people to do work, but I didn't realize I needed people to help me with the management and the strategy, the reporting and the, the, the measurement side of things. Right. And so there's always these mindset challenges mm -hmm. around either personal worth or imposter syndrome or confidence. I know that I, I lacked, I mean, Going into my third company, I was so afraid to fail. You know, my dad begged me, like, could you just get a normal job? Like, I think you've proven yourself, like, you've done this long enough. Like, maybe, you know, and I was just like, and that was coming from a dad who, you know, I just thought as long as I wasn't in trouble with the law, he'd be proud of me. And he was now giving me a hard time. I thought, geez, this must be really bad. And, um, you know, going through that journey of self reflection. And it never stops. You know, uh, I think it's Gay Hendrickson wrote an incredible book called Big Leap. Uh, and it's just this concept of humans have these upper limiting beliefs. And, and if you're not even aware you have them, that's number one. It's like, you know, understand that you have them. Like, it's, it's very simple. You know, like, it shows up in your life on, on the scale. Like, what mm -hmm. do you weigh, right? And when you get to a certain weight, you might have come back from vacation, you put on extra five pounds, boom, two weeks of you know, fitness and, and healthy decisions, and you get back down, right? Um, or your bank account, you know, and, and maybe it's like, okay, I need to have $5,000 in my savings account. And if that goes to three, you stop spending and you save it until it's to five, right? But if it goes to eight, 
you get spend. excited on the yeah. weekend and you spend. So like what happens is we have these thermostats that we set in our lives that we don't even know are there. And like a thermostat, if the room gets hot, it will cool it down. So understanding, you know, these upper limiting beliefs exist. Our jobs, I think, is to ask ourselves, how do I make the old high the new low? So that's the that's the work I do with my coaching clients on the mindset side. It's, you know, what do you like? Because I had a client once, you know, they go, what do I do now? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, my goal was a million dollar a month. That was like the craziest goal when he started his business but 15 years prior. Like if I ever made a million dollars a month, <laughs> that would just be like mind blowing. And here he is making like 1.2 million. And it took all the air out of his tires, all the motivation, because that was his upper limit. And mm -hmm. now that he hit it, he was dragging his feet to work and he was delaying replying to, to potential customers and he was just wasn't into it. And I said, our job is for you to realize that, that that's your new floor, man. Like that's not the upper limit. That's not exciting. Let's reset it. Let's redesign it. Let's have a different perspective. And the best way to heat up you know, or change the dynamics of your thermostat is to get around a peer group that play at a bigger level, right? And that's why for me and my coaching, a component of that coaching is three times a year that those groups of people get together to be inspired, to be shown examples of greatness, to be taught what it looks like to be world-class and excellence. And, and, um, and I just think that to me is like the mindset game that we're playing. It's how do I be aware that I have these upper limiting beliefs and who are the people and circumstances and, and environments that I need to get into to really elevate that, make it the, the old high, the new low. It's so interesting because when you look at an entrepreneur, you can look at their business as their thermostat. Like you're talking about the bank account or the weight. I mean, and you just go, I get it. Here's the individual. Here's their knowledge base. Here's their mind. Here's their mindset. And then you look at their business and you go, there's like a direct correlation. Ryan, between the this is the cool part. And I, and I would love an accountant to, uh, to, you know, let me <laughs> analyze their books, but I think it's 300 K about 2 million revenue so EBITDA, K, or MR, yeah, what are you uh, top line, top okay. line revenue, 300 K 2 million, and then 10 million. And the reason why those breaks exist is because you need to learn a new skill set. Mm -hmm. So at 300,000, you can be a sole contributor, dentist, blah, blah, blah. If you don't learn how to delegate, that's your upper limit. Once you do that, one to 2 million is your upper limit because you're only good enough to delegate to people that do the work. Yep. To go from two to 10, you need to learn how to work with the team that works with the team to deliver the value. Yeah, it's so interesting, Dan, because you could even actually look at the numbers to be able to say, because like in the, the the second part where you're the one to two million, you have to reinvest, you have to learn finance and strategy to reinvest to get to the next level. And so many times the lifestyle creep that goes from the salary into the distributions, pulling money out, they have no idea what they would do with the additional money or time, to your point, right? Um, we're uh, we're getting uh, short of time here. So two final questions for you. One is, what does the word intentional mean for you? Uh, to me, intentional is deliberate about where I spend my time. So literally, if you want to see my priorities, you look at my calendar, you'll know very clearly where, what is important to me. And I'm a minute over. So the, the second question is, uh, what's the best place for everybody to get in touch with you? Instagram is the reality show. If you want to see behind the scenes of my life, go to my Instagram stories where I share the behind the scenes. Uh, LinkedIn is where I share the business strategies on growth, my how-to content on YouTube, my newsletter is where I kind of share internal customer 
case studies, that kind of stuff. You guys are interested in kind of following the journey, but I'm all over Dan Martell, two L's of Martell, my.com, all social media accounts. If I can be helpful, reach out. I'd love to serve. Dan, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. Ryan, absolutely. My pleasure, man. Great meeting you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dan. I want to highlight a couple of things that he talked about throughout the episode that I think are insanely important to start to make progress towards that ultimate vision you have for the company. The first one, once you've shifted your mindset away from solving for annual income towards long-term value creation, is to try and buy back your time. If you want a really valuable company, let's say in three to five years, what is your time worth? in order to get you there. And then you start looking at all the tasks that you have in front of you or all the duties that you're responsible for. Can someone else do them? And can you buy your time back so that way you can focus on the strategic vision of your company and growing enterprise value? So this whole notion of buying back time is honestly the first domino that has to has to t- topple over once you've shifted your mindset. Then the second part is where are you going to invest in the business in order to actually grow the value of your company? You know, Dan talked about his advisors and tax and legal or understanding the cost of capital and and enterprise value. All those things that he mentioned are the exact reasons that Pat and I created the Intentional Growth Online course. So not to have too much of a selfless plug here, but all the things that Dan's talking about, what he wish he would have known is packaged up into our material. We don't go into the specifics of SaaS and the metrics and some of the major stuff that Dan dives into on his YouTube channel. So if you you wanna go into that, go check out his YouTube channel. But if you want to understand valuations, value growth, growing enterprise value, strategic planning, and just really the mechanics on how to have that long-term value growth mindset, go check out our training at arcona.io. Otherwise, go check out Dan's material on his YouTube channel and Instagram and all the other different places that he uh, publishes his content. Otherwise, stay tuned for next week, and I appreciate you so much for tuning in.